right. Here we go. Got some seats over here for you guys. Good to have you guys. Um, are you a stable person? Are you someone that brings spiritual stability, strength to the group that you're in? Are you someone who never thinks about themselves because they're so busy serving others? Are you someone who, when you're in a conversation, um, never talks about yourself and never lets the other person talk about yourself because you're so busy learning and getting to know their spiritual needs and what you can pray for concerning them? Are you somebody who comes out better because of suffering in your life and difficulty? You have more joy in Christ, more confidence in God's providence in your life. Are you someone who is the glue of the groups that you're in, the church group that you're in, right? If you were to be removed, the group would be weakened. Are you someone who has a stabilizing influence? Are you trustworthy? with challenging projects? Um, Could somebody come to you with something that's difficult and hard and they could trust you to do those things? Are you courageous? Do you have courage in your speech? Are you bold? Are you someone that's marked by spiritual stability? Or are you just holding a seat down? Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate you coming and holding a seat down on the ground. But there is a difference between someone who is stable in holding a seat down and someone who is a stabilizing influence in the entire group that you're in, the church that you're in, the youth group that you're in, whatever you want to say. Um, I used used to have this Volvo car, which I have gotten um, so many great illustrations out of. And, and one time I was driving home and being the mechanical idiot um, that I am, I didn't change the oil for a, a too long of a time. And this Volvo was older, so it had a oil leak issue. And I remember one time I was driving home from my parents' house and I noticed the, uh, a plume of smoke coming out the rear view window. Um, and suddenly I saw all the lights on the dashboard go on. Um, and then I pulled over and there was just this smoke just coming out of the engine. What happened, Jack Craw? What happened? It seized. It seized. You know, when you don't put oil in something, it destroys the engine. The head gasket was blown. And if you know anything about cars, which I don't, but Jack does, um, when you blow your head gasket, that car loses a lot of its value. Um, I talked to a mechanic, and I was like, uh, so, so uh, does my car still have some value? He's like, yeah, it's got plenty of value. You tie a chain on that thing, throw it in the ocean, it makes a great, albeit expensive, sea anchor. But it does have value. But then you think about it like a sea anchor, right? Anybody can be a sea anchor. Anything can be a sea anchor. This is actually not that valuable. Um, a stabilizing person is someone that is incredibly value, a valuable commodity to the group of believers that they are in. And that's what we want to be as believers, don't we? We want to be somebody that has true stabilizing um, influence on the, in the group that we are in. Strengthen them, make them better. And not, not so that we can say, whoa, it's all about us, but so that we can, you know, move the message of the gospel forward. We can have a stabilizing influence. Um, The New Testament has a word for the stabilized or stable Christian. um, And that word we find in Acts 4, 31. 
Let's read it together. This is the end of where we were last week, and it's the beginning of where we are this week. It's called a transition. Um, Transition verse. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What is the stable Christian? It is the spirit-filled Christian. That is the Christian that has stabilizing influence on the believers around them. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Acts 4. But before we do that, let's do a couple uh, review things. Where are we in Acts? First off, what's a great title for the book of Acts? Uh, Tony? You'd think she'd remember, but she gets thrown off by my long and confusing introductions. Uh, What is the title of Acts, Tony? The Unstoppable Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, Jesus as he continues his work of saving sinners through the Apostles' witness by the power of the Holy Spirit according to the eternal kingdom plan of God the Father. Yes, good job. Or you could just say the continued Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. All right, next slide. Okay, so let's hear chapter one. We talked about, next slide, uh, preparations for... Preparations for Pentecost, all these things that needed to happen for Pentecost to happen. That was chapter one. Chapter two was day one of the church. Remember, there was all of these unmistakable and remarkable but unrepeatable things that happened in Acts two that were marking, hey, God is doing something unique and new. But then at the end of chapter two, we see chapter two, 42 through 47. We see every day of the church. This is every day of the church. This is the regular life of the church. And you see that in Acts two, 42 through 47. It's very ordinary and very enjoyable and very encouraging. That's what every day looks like. And then chapter 3 through 4, we talked about um, a growing church that is meeting resistance. As a matter of fact, we're going to still be talking about the growing church that's meeting resistance even today. But in chapter 4, verse 32, all the way through 37, or you could even go all the way to six, seven, or 517, you kind of see the church begin to be attacked and continue to be tested by enemies. But today we're just going to talk about the Spirit-filled church. You see that in chapter 431. And, and this mark of being Spirit-filled is kind of what, what um, characterizes the entire picture we're going to see of the church in the rest of chapter 4. Of course, to be filled with the Spirit is to be under the control and the influence of the Spirit. It is to be under the dominion of the Spirit. Um, in Ephesians, in Ephesians five eighteen, we we see that it's like but unlike what it is to be filled with. Don't take this the wrong way. Wine. Um, it says this in in Ephesians five. Um, 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 19, addressing one another, singing, making melody, giving thanks. 21, submitting to one another. So it is like, but very much unlike being filled with wine, being under the controlling influence and even strengthening influence of wine, except it's very different. I don't know how to say that anymore carefully. But, um, but it is, it is, it is something about the people that is there, that are spiritually stable. It is, the ultimate mark of spiritual stability is to be filled with the Spirit. 
have this characteristic in your life of being controlled and governed by the Holy Spirit. It is something that is required of every believer. It is commanded of every believer. It is something we should pursue. And matter of fact, it is something that is repeated. In Acts 4.31, this isn't the first time that the church is said to be filled with the Spirit. In in Acts 2, uh, they are filled with the Spirit again. So it's a repeated thing that we're called to pursue. It is different than what it means to be baptized or dwelt by the Spirit, that is a one-time thing that is not repeated, that you're not commanded to do. To be filled with the Spirit is required, commanded, repeated, all these things. What is it? Well, in Acts we see in Acts we see that people are filled with the Spirit when they need special strengthening to serve the Lord Jesus, right? Uh, The book of Acts, remember, is the continued acts of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he fills his church with his spirit to strengthen them for spiritual service. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. When believers are filled with the spirit, they are strengthened for some particular service. It's interesting, when you look at all of the incidences of spiritual filling of the spirit, it seems to come in particular times, particular times of testing when, when your own resources, your own strength are not enough, God's Spirit gives you strength through filling you with His Spirit. But also, it's very interesting to me that the filling of the Spirit comes most often in times when people are speaking. There, there is some sort of quality of being filled with the Spirit that means being filled with God's words. Matter of fact, that's exactly what being filled with the Spirit is. You want to be filled with the Spirit in your life? Be filled with the control and the power and the strength that comes from being filled with the Word of God. You all know, Pastor Steve even talked about it last week, so it's a little bit redundant, but there is a parallel passage to Ephesians 5.18, and it's Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual thongs, being, songs, being thankful uh, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be filled with the control and the dominating influence of the word of God. That gives you stabilizing influence in your life. And that's what we want, right? We want that spiritual stability that makes us a valuable commodity to the people around us. So do you want to be someone that's stable, that has strengthening influence on the people around you? Be filled with the Word of God. Be filled with prayer for and, uh, and during your reading of the Word of God. That, that will make you a spiritually uh, spiritual stable person. So, in Acts 4, this is all just introduction to talk about the spiritually stable church. We see, we see what this looks like. The spiritual stability has certain marks about it, and we're going to look at that this morning in Acts chapter 4. Um, and first off, what is the first... Uh, the first mark of being spiritually stable or being under the Spirit's control or being Spirit-filled? Well, the first thing that we see is that the believers have a hearty boldness. And this is, of course, going back to 431, a hearty boldness. Hearty is 
not the Hardy Boys. Uh, Hardy is referring to something that is robust, something that is strong for endurance. You have a hardy boldness. And we see this in 431, right? They prayed for boldness and strength to continue doing the work of Jesus, and they were given boldness. This is a sign of being spirit-filled. You have a hardy boldness. And it's very interesting to me, if you turn over to 512, you, you, you kind of see an example and an illustration of what this boldness looks like. Uh, you, if you, I'm, I know I just told you to turn to 512, but let me just tell you this. In chapter 3, all the way at 11, what is the church doing? They are in Solomon's portico, which is a place of the, in the temple, and they are preaching the gospel, and they are having fellowship with one another. The church was so big that that's where they needed to meet. And where do they meet after the persecution starts? They meet in the exact same place, 511. They are meeting together in Solomon's portico. There's this boldness about the early church that even though men are threatening them, even though men are talking bad about them, they're not trying to hide behind closed doors. They are still doing the same thing in the same spot without fear. Right. And they they told the chief priests this. Hey, we are not going to stop doing what we're doing because we must obey God rather than you. There is a hearty boldness about the spirit filled life. It is incredibly free to be spirit-filled, because you are not dominated by the world around you, you are dominated by what God desires. Matter of fact, we could say a spiritually stable church has the conviction and comfort of God's truth that kind of outpaces uh, or, or overtakes all other fears, right? I, I fear God most, and therefore I cannot fear men. You have a hearty boldness about you because you know that God is on your side. You are a spiritually filled individual. What is another mark of the Spirit's stabilizing uh, influence or the Spirit's stability brings also a generous grace. I, I love this picture in chapter 4 um, of the church. It is a generous church, and it has a spirit of generous grace in it. We see 432. Now the full number of those who had believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then jump over to 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It was a church that had a generous grace about them. Notice the generous generosity of their life. And where did this come from? It came from this heart that they had. Verse 32 talks about how they had one heart and soul. They had everything in common. They, they were generous towards each other. They felt each other's needs as if they were their own, and they sought to solve them, um, help them. Um, their love was abundant. I, I love the, the passage in Philippians, Philippians 2, Philippians 2 that talks about the, the, the nature of the Spirit in your life, right? Philippians 2, 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then look at what that produces. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each 
of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There is a generosity that permeates the life of someone that is spirit-filled. They are generous with their things. This is, I would say, kind of especially seen in new believers, right? They are exceptionally generous, right? Because they are the most aware and most familiar with how much God's grace has given them. Because they, they, they're, they're very aware of how much they do not deserve God's grace. And God has given them all of salvation and all of the glories of Christ. And they deserve none of it. None of it. They are marked by generosity because their heart is responding to the grace of God. God in the gospel. Now, I want to clarify something for you. When you read the Bible and you read it all, you make observations about things. You make observations about how the church is generous, but you also have to read the Bible and notice what that means. Luke is not saying here that the early church was a form of communism. And it's very easy to figure this out because you read the Bible and you, you figure that out. If you keep reading, like not even verses, very much farther, you see this very thing explained. You see in 5 verse 4, for example, that there still was a sense of personal property. We'll talk about that next week, but there still was a sense. Hey, you own your possessions. And you can do with your possessions whatever you want. You can sell them. You can choose to not sell them. The church wasn't a place that, that said, like, you have to sell your land and your houses. And you have to give all of your money to the church so that we can distribute it for you. Redistribute it, you could say. That's not what was going on here because verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 4, says that that wasn't what was happening. What was going on here in the church? Well, it was a church that had this generosity, transformed nature of the heart. People were doing this freely. They weren't commanded to do this. They were doing this because they wanted to do this. They wanted to serve one another. That is the kind of generosity that Christ wants in his church. Not, not, the, not something that's under compulsion, but something that's free of the heart. A spiritually stable church is, as we would say, racing to be in third place, right? We are racing to serve one another, racing to put one another first. And of course, because you guys are all tricky theologians, you guys corrected me not saying racing for second place because first place should be Jesus's place. We're racing for third place because my neighbor is in second place and then Jesus is in first, so I'm racing for third. So there you go. We are racing for third place. We're racing to serve one another from the, the, the freeness that the gospel gives us, right? We no longer hold on to any of our possessions tightly anymore because of what God's grace has done in our hearts. The Spirit's stability brings a generous grace. But let's look at something else. The Spirit's stability brings a primary focus, or, yeah, a primary focus. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Notice, the church, because it was filled with the Spirit, had a focus about it, right? They weren't just existing to exist. They weren't just, hey, I feel comfortable and at home with you guys, so let's just spend the rest of our time just hanging out together. They had an aim. They had a primary focus, and what was that? To make the gospel known, to promote 
the apostles' teaching, the apostles' witness. That, that's what they were there to do. They were there to support the preaching of the word. Matter of fact, you see the apostles here in focus. They were giving their testimony. Whenever you see the apostles' testimony, that's witness to Christ, witness to the gospel. And whenever you see something like a phrase like the apostles' teaching, that is, that, that's scripture, right? This is the apostles' teaching right here that you have in your hands. So when we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that the early church dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, they were dedicating themselves to knowing and promoting and producing and proclaiming the word of God. They had a primary focus. It wasn't just about them. It was about letting Christ be known to the world around them. And being, as it says in in 1 Timothy 3, right, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, there's a few interesting things that I want to point out to you here. Notice the apostles' power was not used to solve all of their physical and economic needs. Did you read that? Right? Notice verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was a primary focus of their power. And it wasn't meant to solve their financial problems. You know how we know that? Because we just read in 32, and we just are about to read in 34 and 35, that the church itself was the solution to their problems. The church itself was God's gift of grace to help support and encourage one another. Interesting, right? The apostles had power, but they used their power to simply proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the church, I would say, never exists to solve world hunger or to solve homelessness, or any of these other things. It, it, sol- it, is, it exists to have this primary focus, which is to proclaim the truth about Jesus, the truth about the gospel. And notice also, God's grace does provide for the needs of the church, but it's not through extraordinary means. It's through very ordinary means. It's through one believer saying, hey, this believer over here has a need, and I can solve it, and I can help them in it, and that is God's means of grace to support and supply the church. They're very, we, we are to be primarily focused on proclaiming the gospel, but also helping one another. That's God's ordinary means of providing for the church. I love 1 Peter 4, 8. We've talked about it on Thursday night, but let me read it to you again. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Notice that. How does... How does the Lord Jesus Christ support and provide for his church? It is often very ordinary. I mean, think about it this, this way. If God used the ordinary means of grace in the earliest church to support them, the fellow believers providing for the needs of fellow believers, how much more does he use ordinary grace now to support and supply the church. God gets glory, in fact, through using the ordinary transformed lives of believers, the ordinary generosity that comes from the gospel. God gets glory from that. Also, notice this under this idea of a primary focus. The extraordinary powers of the early church appear, to me here in this verse at least, to be limited to the apostles, right? All the believers weren't doing extraordinary things. They were doing ordinary things. 
The apostles were given extraordinary power, but for a primary focus, which was to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Um, a healthy and stable church may be very ordinary, may be a very ordinary place, uh, not extraordinary. These extraordinary gifts were for a primary purpose to make the gospel known. A spiritually stable church, we could conclude, is a very ordinary place in its care. A spiritually stable church is also not primarily focused on its survival in the world, but it's primarily focused on the proclamation of the gospel. Do you want to be stable? Do you want to be a stabilizing influence in this world? Be consumed with delight in making the gospel known and saying, God will care for my needs. I don't need to be consumed with my needs. I want to be consumed with the desire to make the gospel known. That is a very stable person that puts their confidence in God. Let's jump to the next one. Uh, The Spirit's stability also brings an index of examples. Okay, now I'm just being weird. I know. But I just like this idea of the church being an index of examples. An index is a catalog of resources, um, probably something we don't know about anymore in the Internet age. Um, It is a list of examples to choose from. That's what an index is, right? You go to the back of the book and you see an index. This This is everything that's in this book. And in the church... In the spirit-filled church, in the in the spirit-filled church, we have an index, a a catalog, a list of examples to choose from. What am I talking about here? The early church was is a place of spirit-filled people, not just spirit-filled leaders. Everybody in the church that is stable the spirit filled church is spirit filled it's not just a mark of the apostles it's not just the mark of the super spiritual ones everybody in the church is called to be spirit filled we see this in Ephesians 5:18 of course but we also see it here as well the church was full of extraordinary individuals who were extraordinary in just their ordinary nature right and we should be able to look around our church And find all sorts of examples of spirit-filled living, not just in our leaders. Notice what it says there at the end of 33. Great grace was upon them all. They, 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 were, they were all stabilizing to one another. God's ordinary grace was stabilizing the church through all of the believers, not just the apostles. Or you can say it this way, the qualifications of eldership are to be examples of what everybody should be. Everybody should be like that. It's not just for the senior pastor to be bold and generous and focused. The whole church is to be spirit-filled. Now, I, I say this because this is how Luke kind of handles it. He, he kind of explains how a spirit-filled church looks, and then he gives us this amazing example of a spirit-filled believer. Who, who is that believer? It's, it's this man by the name of Barnabas. What a name, Barnabas. I I tried to talk Serena into naming our next kid Barnabas, but it's just not the kind of name she wants to have floating around her house, apparently. But this guy is extraordinary. You'll love him, right? You'll love him when you see him. Barnabas is an ordinary source of God's encouragement, something that we, to some level, should strive to um, copy or, or, or be like. Let's read here verse 36. Thus Joseph who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Notice we've got an example here of what everybody was doing. A lot of people in the early church were doing this, and Luke says, let me tell you about one of them. This is just one of many. I could pull all sorts of examples, but I want to introduce you to Barnabas because, well, one, you're going to want to know about him later because he's kind of an important person in the book of Acts. But also, two, he is just an example of God's ordinary grace. Well, who is this man, Barnabas? Let's talk about it really quick. Um, We've got a slide here that I'm going to do. Um, He was a Levite from this island called Cyprus, which is out there in the Mediterranean. Um, it's It's one of the bigger islands, honestly, in the Mediterranean. He was the uncle to a man named John Mark, who wrote uh, the Gospel of Mark. You see that in Colossians 4.10. Um, he was a Levite, um, and in the Old Testament, Levites weren't supposed to have land, but apparently that kind of went away by this point, because he has some land at this, at this point. And matter of fact, Levites kind of had a reputation for being very wealthy and very highly educated individuals, so that might be Barnabas. And it's not exactly clear where... Um, this field was that Barnabas sold, but it seems to me like it could be that the field was in Cyprus, and when Barnabas came to Jerusalem to celebrate you know, a Jewish fast, Pentecost happened, and when he was dramatically converted, his whole life changed, and he wanted to be with the church, and so he sold his property in Cyprus and moved to Jerusalem. It could be. It's a strong possibility, but not clear, obviously. Um, And then you see he was given this nickname, uh, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Um, Yeah, and that's how it goes, right? Joseph is such a common name. You need something a little bit more unique. Some of you have names that are the same, and I need to give you nicknames to distinguish you. You know, like Tate, that's a very common name, so I have to call him Tater Tot. You know, it's just like some some people just need more, uh, more names so we can distinguish one from the other. But you notice something about his name. It indicates that he was a source of spiritual encouragement to everyone around him. How was he? What, what kind of man was Barnabas? Well, let's, let's paint a portrait really quick for, for ourselves of Barnabas. We have the, kind of the, the, first, uh, the first swash of color on this portrait would be that he was someone with a generous heart. He had a generous heart. Once again, these are going to be very similar to the pictures of the church that we've already talked about. Uh, He had a generous heart. The same spirit of grace that was within the church, causing all of this generosity, was clearly in Barnabas as well. As a matter of fact... um, uh, hold, uh, hold chapter 4 in your hands and, and flip over to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9. We, we, we've seen here in Acts 4.36 that he was extraordinarily generous. He sold a piece of personal property and sacrificially gave to the physical needs of the local church. And, and, but we see this same spirit about Barnabas all throughout the Bible. He is extraordinarily generous with his life. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul is talking about you know, how he surrenders his rights. He, 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 he gives up things that he could hold on to, but for the sake of the gospel, he says, you know, I'm going to go without these freedoms that I could enjoy so that I can promote and proclaim the gospel more freely among other people. And Barnabas is right here with him. We see in 1 Corinthians 9, 
Verse 6, he's talking about surrendering his rights. Uh, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no rights to refrain from working or from living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock? Of course, he's talking about how he has the rights to do these things, but he doesn't do them. And notice he also says in verse 6 that Barnabas and him seem to do the same thing. Barnabas goes without things as well so that he can be a giver to other people, right? He doesn't take. He doesn't take a kind of a an income from the church. He works his own way so that he can serve them freely. Barnabas was a generous person. He worked so he could proclaim the gospel without requiring anything of them. Um, uh, a church planner's heart, you could say. Um, and Barnabas was also generous in his view of people as well. It wasn't just that he was generous with his money. He was also generous in his heart and his attitude towards other people. Here's something I want to be. Someone that has a generous eye for other people like Barnabas. He is one who saw God's unexpected grace in other people. He he had an eye that believed in the power of God to transform any individual. Now, uh, sometimes, like I said, uh, sometimes this needs to be understood carefully, but I just want you to notice this about Barnabas. He is the one who first believed and reached out to and, and was kind of an in-between, go-betweener for the Church of Jerusalem for the, the, the famed Apostle Paul. And before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was, of course, the hated Saul, the Saul that persecuted the church. But who was the one, when Paul was converted, that went to Paul, talked to him, and then brought him to the early church? It was Barnabas, right? It is very tricky to see God's grace in your enemies, a man that was once trying to kill you all, to now say, wow, I see God's grace at work in you. He had a very generous heart. And we also see in Barnabas something else as well. Turn over to Acts 11. Acts 11. He was also the one who first went and was sent by the early church, went to see the work of God's grace in the Gentiles. Now, like I said, it's, it's very difficult to see God's grace in your enemies. It's also very difficult to see God's grace in the people you'd least expect God to save. But that's who Barnabas is. He was the one that first testified to the grace of God in the Gentiles, the people that were thought outside of the program of God. Barnabas was the one. Let's read um, chapter 11, verse 22. Uh, let's jump over in 21. Um, the hand of the Lord was with them, that's the Gentiles, and a great, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I love that verse. I love that verse because it tells you so much about Barnabas. Um, He didn't just, though, believe in everyone. That's not what I'm talking about. A generous eye is not someone that just says, I believe in everybody in the world. No, a generous eye believes in the greatness of God's power to transform anyone in the world, right? A generous eye says, wow, if God is so gracious to me, the chief of sinners, he can save anyone. And I believe that his grace can transform anyone. And I am willing to believe that his grace can transform even these unlikely individuals as well. Um, A generous heart 
is gripped by God's grace. I love this picture in Barnabas. Notice how he is glad in verse 23. He is glad when he saw the grace of God at work. Can you say that? Are you glad when you see God's grace at work in someone who you don't like? Or an enemy? You see God working in them, and you're glad about that because you want God to get the glory, and you are glad to see his grace at work because it reminds you, of course, of his grace at work in you. God shouldn't be gracious to me, but he is. And I'm glad in his grace for other people. Let's look at something else in Barnabas. He had uh, he was trustworthy of character. Trustworthy of character. Uh, proven character is a hot commodity. Trustworthiness is a hot commodity in any group. And we obviously see that in 1122. He was trusted to investigate this very important issue in the life of the early church. Uh, does God's grace really extended to the Gentiles? He was trustworthy to do that. Um, why was he generous in heart? Why was he trustworthy? It says this in chapter eleven twenty four. if you're still there. Uh, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and Uh, We'll stop right there. He was a good man, was. He was continually characterized by this goodness. He was good. The word is where we get the the name Agatha. Agatha Christie, it means good in Greek. It means to be valuable. Uh, In talking about people, it means someone who is meeting the highest standard. They're valuable to the community um, or society. Um, people who leave a noticeable hole when you take them out, people who are hard to replace. He is a good man. He was a good man. Why was he good? Well, you see it there. It's because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was controlled by the Word of God. How do we see his trustworthy character? Well, he was trustworthy in an issue like this where he's going to investigate the the Gentile issue. He was also trustworthy in 1130 to handle a very generous gift that the Gentiles were giving to the Jerusalem church. He was trustworthy with financial matters. He wasn't a slave of money. He didn't have uh, a money problem. He was trustworthy. He was also trustworthy with truth. We see over in Acts 13.2 that he was set apart by the Holy Spirit along with Paul to the first missionary journey of Paul, right? He was trustworthy with truth. He was someone who was trustworthy of character. And, and how, do you, how do you produce trustworthiness like this? Well, you start small. You start by being faithful in little. And your diligence will give you more and more responsibilities when you are proven faithful. Uh, but start small. Let's talk about another thing in Barnabas. He was gifted for ministry. He was a gift to the church in many various ways. And every believer is gifted in various ways. Take 1 Peter 4 very seriously. His varied grace or multicolored grace. Every believer has like an interesting mixture of God's grace at work in them. And Barnabas is no exception. We see, for example, when he is peacemaking between Paul and the early church, he has a gift of peacemaker. That is who he is. He is a peacemaker. A willingness to be bit 
in order to make peace between two warring parties. That's who Barnabas was. We see in chapter 13, verse 1, he has this gift of truth-telling, prophecy. He declares truth. In chapter 13, verse 2, he has a gift of evangelism, to declare God's truth to people who do not know him. He is fit for missions. We see in chapter 11, 23, or 13, 43, he has the gift of exhortation. And going back there to 11, uh, 23, notice he was glad in the grace and he exhorted them to remain faithful, right? If you are glad in the grace of God, you want those people that have the grace of God to continue in the grace of God. And that leads you to exhorting them, to encouraging them to remain in the grace of God. He also had a clear theological mind. This is a grace of God. In, in 1346, we see this. He understood this kind of this tension that God was working between the Jews and the Gentiles. He understood that, and that shaped his whole entire outreach ministry. He was a careful thinker. But also, I'd say we'd say most off, we see he had the gracious gift of love towards his fellow believer. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians um, 12, 13, 14 talks about the gifts of the church. And Paul says right in the middle of all those gifts saying, hey, there are higher gifts, greater gifts that we should all pursue. And it's not speaking in tongues. It's not prophecy. It's not service. It is love for one another. That is the high thing. And he has this. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, the highest gift. He was self-sacrificing. I will go without things that I could have in order that you may be filled, in order that you may have what you need. I will go without. And one one little shocker, uh, if you study the life of Barnabas, is he is not necessarily the speaker. Barnabas is a support. Yes, he had a gift of prophecy. Yes, he was an exhorter. Yes, he was an evangelist in many ways. But you see in Acts 14.12, for example, Barnabas and Paul are on a missionary journey and it's a funny incident, uh, but they, they, uh, Paul, Paul, does, Paul does an extraordinary miracle, and all the people in this city are like ooing and aahing over this, and they think that the gods have come down uh, from heaven to earth, and they give Barnabas and Paul nicknames. They give uh, Paul the nickname Hermes, which was the chief speaker of the gods, and then they give Barnabas uh, the name Zeus. So it was clear, in their mind at least, that Paul was the speaker and Barnabas was kind of the support guy. At least in my mind, that's how I picture it. Right. But isn't it extraordinary that a stabilizing influence, such a godly man does not necessarily always have to be the speaker. He can be the servant. He doesn't always have to be the senior pastor. That is who Barnabas was. But one last little little shade of color on our portrait of Barnabas. And I want you guys to all see this. He was an imperfect man. All the same. Perfect man. All the same. And that's who all of you are. You are gifted for ministry. You might even be able to do extraordinary things for the local church, but you'll be imperfect all the same. And there's great encouragement in looking to somebody like Barnabas because you see, wow, God can still use imperfect men. We see this in Galatians 2.13, right? He gets caught into this trap of wanting to please these Judaizers that come from Jerusalem and Peter freaks out and he pulls away from hanging out with the Gentiles and Barnabas is led astray with Peter. He had this weak slip, this momentary slip 
in holding fast to the truth of the gospel because of peer pressure, because of the fear of man. And by the way, Paul is, is kind of blown away by Barnabas. Usually Barnabas is so, so stable. And when, when Paul's explaining it in Galatians 2, he, he says, even Barnabas was led to do this. This was not normally what Barnabas was characterized by, but he too was an imperfect man. And we see also in Acts 15, a really sad scene. We see the last interaction that we know of uh, between Barnabas and Paul. And I, I can't believe that this is actually the last time they ever talk to each other. But this is the last time we are shown that they are talking to each other. And they are having a fight. They are arguing about whether to take John Mark with them on the next missionary journey. Paul doesn't trust them because John Mark split away from them during an earlier missionary journey. And Paul says he, 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 needs, to be, he needs to be tested further before he can be trusted with such ministry. He is not trustworthy of character enough. And of course, Barnabas says, no, I think, I think we should bring him along. I think, I think he has grown since then. And of course, there is a sharp argument between the two of them in Acts 15.39, and they part ways. Now, before you're, you're quick to say, I think Paul is at fault here, Barnabas is being generous, and probably that's what should have happened here, we, you should know that as Luke is telling this story in Acts, he's clearly taking Paul's side by the way he talks about it. It's clear that John Mark was not ready for ministry yet, and probably Barnabas shouldn't have done that. He should have trusted Paul and followed Paul. And also, you should also know that, as I said before, Barnabas was John Mark's uncle. So there's probably a little bit of family favoritism going on here, right? That's a weakness I know. That's a weakness you know, right? You're, you're willing to look past the faults of some people because you like them. Maybe they're not ready for a position that you, should, you, should, you want to give to them, but you give it to them because they're family or something like that. Um, Barnabas probably makes a mistake here. He probably favors his family over favoring faithfulness. Barnabas, of all people, is imperfect as well. But here, like I said, is where we see the grace of God even on display, right? God is still working profoundly through imperfect people. For one, we know that later Mark becomes useful. The guy wrote a gospel, okay? You're pretty useful, I think, when you're able to do that, right? God's grace still works through someone useless like Mark to make him useful. And we also see something else. Barnabas and John Mark, they go to Cyprus preaching the gospel. So in a way, yeah, Paul goes one way and Barnabas goes the other, but they both go different ways preaching the gospel. And what was uh, you know, a, a one-pronged attack now becomes a two-pronged attack. And, and, and I, I take personal encouragement from this, because even when we fail, God's grace is still capable of doing great things, even in our failure, even in our moments of weakness. Now, that doesn't give us license to go fail. The grace may abound. Obviously, it is, it is a generous grace on God's part to use us even when we are weak. That's how he used Barnabas. Um, the spiritually stable church, though, all to say, is filled with godly individuals like this. This isn't just the leaders of the church. It's everybody. We're all given varied grace to serve one another. Let's jump to 
our, our final kind of piece here. The Spirit's stability brings a hearty boldness, a generous grace, a primary focus, an index of examples, but also one last thing to encourage us and to bless us before we go home um, this afternoon. The Spirit's stability brings a furious attack. That's what's going to come to you. If you are a stable individual, you are going to be tested and attacked, tried. Godliness attracts persecution, suffering, like blood in the water attracts sharks. Uh, Godliness attracts attention and trial, like movement on no man's land front in World War I attracts bullets. The testing and trial, Satan's devices will come after you when you try and strive to live godly in Christ Jesus. When you are seeking to live a spirit-filled life, attack is going to come your way. Godliness is a magnet for these things. Why is it a magnet for these things? Well, because the spirit-filled life is a Christ-like life. And what is the life that Satan hates above all? Christ's life. And when he sees that life duplicated in little image bearers all around the world, he attacks it and tries to destroy it and disarm it and weaken it. Satan hates Christ. But also, why does this happen? Not just because Satan hates Christ, because Christ loves strength. And he wants to strengthen the church. There is no spiritual strength that you have that doesn't go um, untested. If your spiritual strength remains untested, it's not really strength. It's actual weakness. And Christ wants the church to be strong. So he lets, he allows, he, he ordains pain and suffering to come the church's way, to come your way, to strengthen you so that you can become stronger, so that you can see where you are weak and shore up your loose ends. You could say it this way. It's actually a very favored position to be under trial and tribulation because it means that Christ, the head of the church, who is continuing his work, is working on you. And that's a very blessed place to be. It's a favored position. This is the spirit-filled church. It's the spiritually sweet place to be. It is, it is filled with precious individuals. And do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to be a part of that? This comes through being spirit-filled, being filled with the Word of God, praying for God's strength to flow through you in obedience to the Word of God and submission to His will. If you are this kind of person, you are a hot commodity, a spiritual, valuable person to the people around you. I want to be this way, don't you? I want to be this way. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this morning, um, this message that's a particular encouragement to us, especially when we think about how imperfect the early church was. You still powerfully worked in it to move about your will. We pray that we would be like the early church in how we are filled with strength that comes from your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.